Hey, welcome to Box Talks. Thank you once again for joining in. As you know, we try to bring you perspective of a new, refreshing kind with each of these chats. And um, that was primarily the reason I wanted to do today's talk and well, all of the others, but about our guest. I sit down today with Andrew Bisharath, probably one of the most well-known writers in the space of rock climbing. If you've even casually read anything climbing related over the past 10 or 15 years, there's a big chance you would have come into some of Andrew's work. My idea was to have a chat, an exchange of perspectives between a climbing journalist, a media person from the West, a highly developed climbing culture, and myself, a media person, and in the climbing scene here in India, which is young, which is nascent, and at times does offer diametrically opposite uh, realities and viewpoints. So with that in mind, we uh, cover quite a bit of ground, but much of our chat centers around storytelling in climbing, what Andrew considers an interesting story, what I consider an interesting story, how or if storytelling itself has changed with the uh, advent of social media, why, why rock climbing doesn't have that canon of literature yet that mountaineering and well mountain sports alpinism essentially does have um we also talk about his recent article in rock and ice magazine where he wrote about changing offensive root names and he received um quite a lot of backlash for that i ask him how he dealt with that backlash he shares his opinions and um we discuss the place of outrage culture in climbing journalism, essentially what it's done. Is it healthy? Is it easy to be a writer? And um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of food for thought over here. It's an exchange between two climbing cultures and two writers coming from two very different realities, but somewhere in the middle, we definitely do meet when it comes to understanding what makes a good climbing story. I genuinely hope you find this valuable. I, thoroughly enjoyed having Andrew on uh, the show. And I frankly wish I had a little bit more time. So, well, here we are. Box Talks with Andrew Bishra. Thanks, man, for coming on. Yeah, of course. Uh, it, yeah, it's a chat I'm kind of looking forward to. So, I mean, my idea was just that we discuss climbing media and climbing storytelling, you mm-hmm. know, from two different perspectives. Yours being more uh, developed one in mind, being kind of young and nascent. And then we kind of work through the chat from there, but of course, I'd like to get a bit of perspective into who you are. So could we start there, how you got into climbing and. Sure. Um, yeah, I, uh, let's see. I, I started climbing when, um, I guess when I was a teenager, um, my girlfriend at the time got me a climbing lesson for my birthday. And I was, that was up at the gunks in New York where I was, uh, born and um and so i started climbing there but i didn't really get into it into until uh college and um yeah once i found it i just kind of didn't look back um and uh so yeah i started i went to college in in the northeast in boston and um climbed all around the northeast and then moved to, you know spent time in yosemite and um but I've been living in Colorado for the last uh, 16 years and climbing around here mostly. 
Did it, uh, what about it click? Did it click initially? Did you see yourself becoming a lifer or was it a bit of a gradual process? Um, you know, what, did, what clicked about it? It was, I mean, I, I guess it was just the, the movement was so interesting and fun. And, uh, but then, you know, it, it's one of those things you peel layers down and you get into, you see the, the history of the sport and you start realizing the potential for travel and adventure and, um, all of those things just add to the richness of it. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously, as you know, it's a great, great way to spend time and see the world and have a community and, um, have a reason to, you know, stay in shape and that kind of thing. So all of those things are appealing and, um, I don't, you know, I, I sort of remember them being instantly appealing. Um, and, uh, yeah. Uh, speaking of stay in shape, I can see your hangboard. It's, it's in the frame. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> I, yeah. I do, I do, I do, uh, this is my little office here where I work and I do try to do some pull-ups in between writing painfully drawn out sentences that take forever. Painfully drawn out. We'll get to that. Uh, for me, it was, uh, slightly different. I kind of got into climbing because, you know, the company that I was working for, it was a radio network. They had closed and we'd all moved into another startup, the same team and work was really slow. We were sort of just going into work around two o'clock and there wasn't that much and we'd leave in an hour, an hour and a half. And I just wanted something. So that's sort of how I started climbing. I just went to my local climbing wall. There was just one in Bangalore at that time. And I popped up over there, but uh I enjoyed it, but I didn't have the discipline. You know, mm. it was one day on and like, let's say four or five days off. And then sometimes I climbed for two, three days and then 10 days off and a couple of months off. And what really flipped it for me was breaking my hand. I, mm. uh, I broke my forearm. You can, you can see that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And this over here. So it was from a dyno and this was a year and a half or so into climbing. And I was just starting to get a bit more, okay, I really want to put myself into this and get serious. And I, I went for this double dyno thing and I broke it. It just I fell on a mat and it just like went crack with that. And after that, that's when I would say it, I really got serious with it. So yeah, different journey slightly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I, um, I didn't have a lot of, uh, people around me to, to climb with, you know, I was, I was a be very much a beginner, but I was also the most experienced one in my group of friends in college. And, um, and so that meant that, you know, like I had I, by experience, I mean, like I owned cams and they didn't. And, uh, <laughs> so it was, um, sort of figuring this out by myself and um really wasn't until after I graduated college that I uh, found a climbing community and, and was immersed and surrounded myself around people who actually knew what they were doing and um and so that was like an interesting part of my I think upbringing was just having to seek out resources and books and things that I could you know find on the internet about just how to how to actually do the sport safely and, um, you know, not die and that, that kind of thing. Do you miss those days, you know, when you had that beginner mindset where everything was kind of an increment and 
you, I mean, just games were happening all the time. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's nothing better than, I think the, the beginner mindset is probably the best mindset you can have. And, uh, you know, the, that initial learning curve is so enjoyable. Um, you know, I read, uh, I was reading a, a cookbook because I like to cook and, um, it was Thomas Keller. He's, he's a famous chef. He was describing how, uh, the first time he like bit into a, like a, a true, a real croissant in, in Paris. And, you know, he's had millions of, you know, thousands of croissants he's eaten since then. But that, that first one where he really experienced what the, the flavors and the texture and everything is supposed to be like was just, you can't replace that. It's that, it's that first moment of experiencing something um, like that. And, and climbing in some ways is, yeah, there is that, um, you can't recreate that, that mindset of, of where you're filled with curiosity and fear and excitement and all of those things. Um, yeah, just come together in a way that, that you'll only get to, to have that moment once. And, um, and yeah, and then it just changes as you get older, uh, the way all things do. For me, what I really miss about that period is the lack of a previous standard of my own. You know, you're not really measuring against any previous form that you had, a previous climb that you did. You didn't, you don't have this thing of, oh yeah, I flashed, I don't know, seven C over here. So I should be able to do this. Um, yeah, I miss that because sometimes, yeah. you know, when you start making progress, you get strong, you have goals, you come close. It all becomes a little heavy and you're constantly measuring against yourself. And after a while that can become a little tedious. So it's this game. I mean, the mental game just gets a bit more uh, complicated. That's, that's the part Mm -hmm. that I miss, but I definitely enjoy getting better and getting stronger and, you know, just becoming a better climber simply because in a place like India, where there's so much of rock to -hmm. just establish, it just allows you to do so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can land up in a valley with thousands and thousands and millions of boulders and, they're untouched and you know, the better you climb, the more you can play. So that's a huge motivating factor for me at this point. Where do you live? I live right now in Delhi, but I split my time typically between a state called Himachal Pradesh, which is in the Himalayan uh, Mm -hmm. belt and either Delhi or Bangalore, which are in the plains. So Mm -hmm. spring is usually climbing season and then monsoon it rains and can't really climb over there. So I calm down the train and then I'm back up in autumn and then I'm back down in winter. So that's how I move. Mm-hmm. And how far is the nearest climbing from where you are? You are The nearest climbing from where I am on rock, just an hour or so. And yeah. actually there's a few boulders scattered, even just uh, very close about 25 minutes or so uh, from mm-hmm. here. But if you're talking about an entire developed area and I boulder that's primarily my type of climbing or focus yeah. if you will uh yeah the rock that I like is in Himachal Pradesh and that's overnight you gotta it's a 12-hour bus ride from here okay yeah okay but there's cool. excellent uh trad crags around Delhi and they've mm-hmm. got a bit of a colorful history I mean the development's been going on since the late 70s so it's nice it's uh it's new in that sense there's a lot I've never been to India, but um, it looks like a 
fantastic place to visit. And all the photos of the climbing that I've seen look amazing. There's a lot of uh, diversity, you know, and I and I know that word is being used in so many different contexts now, but <laughs> I kind of really mean this in terms of uh, rock types, because if you go to the Alpine areas, every 10 kilometers, practically, you have a different valley, which has a completely different type of rock. And then if you come to the plains, you have these, uh, you know, in the Deccan Plateau where Humpy is and so on. It's just these beds of granite that go on forever. So there's a lot of variety. I mean, it's, what's the deal? What's the deal with with Hampi right now? Is that I I know that there was some kind of closure of the town or re- development that was going on. I, I'm not up to date on what was happening, but is, does that affect the climbing there? It does not affect the climbing okay. there, but it is kind of similar to what's going on in Magic Woods right now, mm-hmm. where one family, uh, the Salus family, I think that's been running that guest house, their lease is they're not being uh, renewed or there's a threat of it not being renewed. In Hampi, what happened was uh, there was an island. The name of the island is Virupapur Gaddi. And that's where a lot of the guest houses were established. And that's where a lot of climbers used to stay. The area is vast, of course, and you can stay in many different areas. But usually this was the hotspot. And the Supreme Court, I think based on UNESCO regulations and so on, issued uh, an order to demolish all these guest houses. So, Lots, dozens of families were just put out of business instantly and they were just kind of thrown out. Mm. And it was quite heartbreaking. And obviously they're going to reestablish elsewhere, but Mm -hmm. it just happened in a swipe like that. Of course, the legal battle was going on for some time. But yeah, it's sad because many of these uh, business owners were small time business owners. They had no education. They didn't know how to access the law to hire lawyers to fight in the Supreme Court. So it's a, it's a power mm. game and it's really sad that that happened. Right. Hmm. Um, have you been to the U S never, never, I would like to, I would love to. I mean, I haven't, my sister worked there for years. Uh, she was in Seattle and uh, my brother-in-law was also there. They're now in Berlin, but no, I haven't been. Yeah. Well, at some point, we'll uh, have to visit each other in yeah. respective <laughs> countries. We should. Um, can we talk a little bit about writing, how you came into it? And Sure. Um, how did I come into it? Well, uh, I it was something I was, I guess, always talented at. I don't Well, that's maybe like a grandiose word, but it was something I was like – I was good at in school, in grade school and stuff, but it didn't really register that that's something I would want to do with my life um, because I was more interested in math and science. Um, and I actually went to school uh, and I went to college originally to become an engineer, um, but that quickly revealed itself to be a, a horrible idea to mm-hmm. me. Um, and uh, so then I ended up getting a degree in politics and, but during the course of my college, I was, I was in, just started becoming more and more drawn to writing. And, um, my first, especially, um, as I became more and more of a climber. So the, the two, the two, uh, these two, you know, things that I was doing kind of, um, percolated up together at the same time for me. And, um, I was, 
studying abroad. I did a semester abroad in New Zealand um, one year, and I saw this story on the news about this climber who had just climbed the highest mountain in New Zealand, Mount Cook, uh, 20 years after he had lost his legs from frostbite on the mountain. And I don't know what, it, why I had this idea, but I thought that I could interview him and write a story about him. And I really don't know where that idea came from, but I, and I had no real context of like what it meant to be a journalist or what to do, where you would even start. But I ended up contacting him and he agreed to do an interview and I like got in my car and drove you know, eight hours up the island to meet him at his farm. And, um, and, you know, I think I bought like a little tape recorder, uh, and, you know, had my book of questions and stuff and sat down and just conducted one of the worst interviews that's probably ever been done, um, by any aspiring writer. Just, you know, all softball questions and nothing. And there's no like interesting. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. So I just I interviewed this guy and then I tried to I set about trying to write an article about his experience and journey with this mountain. And um, I spent probably six the next six months like working on this story and it made every single mistake I think you could possibly make as a writer. And what I ended up writing was so bad and never got published anywhere. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the, it was, it was one of the most valuable experiences because I made so many mistakes and learned from them in a, in a, a lot of ways. Um, you know, from what it means to just be, to, to interview people, to, how not to write, which is to get so um, hung up on making each sentence perfect before you go to the next one. Um, you can waste a lot of time, you know, doing writing in that manner. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of my inglorious introduction to writing about climbing. And I, I really don't know why I had that idea to do that or why I, I part of the reason was um, my uh, the school where I was at in New Zealand was not very challenging academically and I was I literally like turned in all of my assign my midterms like within the first week of school and then just spent the re I didn't go to class I just spent the rest of the time climbing and um, so I think I was maybe bored and looking for something to do with my time. And, uh, that, maybe that's where that idea came from, but anyway, that, uh, yeah, so that, um, that was kind of my foray into it. And then, um, and then I kept, I kept doing stuff like that where I'd find, I, I it was almost like I was finding, I, I met a group of friends, um, through asking if I could write a story about them. And, um, they became, you know, lifelong friends of mine, but it was all predicated on, um, you know, doing a profile on their little climbing scene. And so I was like kind of building a community for myself at the same time that I was, I was teaching myself how to be a writer, um, and how to be a journalist of, of, of this sport. 
And, um, but just doing those things, you know, they, they were all like unsuccessful in a lot of ways. And what I was writing wasn't very good. I don't think. Um, but you know, I was, I was trying to make connections. I was sending my terrible articles into the climbing magazines and getting feedback from them. And, um, it was all really discouraging and, you know, uh, but I kept doing that. And, um, and then I, uh, I got as a, you know, I was doing these road trips from the East coast where I was living to the, to Yosemite, you know, twice a year. And I would stop in Colorado to see a, a college friend of mine. And, uh, we, you know, we, we happened to be in the, in the town where both of the American climbing magazines were located. Um, and so I had emailed people at both of these magazines and, um, just decided to go in and introduce myself. And, um, the editor at the time at Rock and Ice magazine, Matt Samet, he offered, he was just basically like, you should do an internship here if you want. And, um, you know, I kind of didn't have much else going on. And so I thought that sounded like a good idea. And so I did an internship at Rock and Ice magazine for summer. Um, I ended up writing a feature during that internship. Um, and, you know, and then the internship ended and, you know, I was back to being on the road and living in Yosemite out of my car and stuff like that. And, uh, and then they, you know, the magazine called me up a few months later and asked if I wanted to apply for a job as an editor. So I did that and ended up getting that job and, and worked as an editor at Rock and Ice magazine for nine years. And, um, and then, uh, and since then I've been freelancing for the last, um, seven years. So that's kind of my, my, uh, the brief overview of my, my career. Do you remember, uh, that climber's name? The one in New Zealand. Of course, yeah. It was Mark Inglis. Um, and, uh, he, yeah, so he lost both his legs, uh, from, he was, he was trapped at the, on the summit of, of Mount Cook for seven days, um, melting water on his stomach and, um, uh, to, you know, to drink. And there was this giant storm that kind of kept him trapped up there. And he lost both of his legs below the knee to, uh, frostbite. Um, and he ended up having an, an interesting, he, so he went on actually after Mount Cook, he went, he got into, um, or he went to go climb Everest and he climbed Everest in like 20, I'm, I actually can't remember the year, but, um, probably 10 years ago. And he ended up getting into a bit of a, of trouble because he, he basically like walked past people who were dying. It was like one of those classic stories where mountaineers, mountaineers were like on their way to the summit while people were in the snow suffering, um, and requiring help or assistance. And he, he was one of the people who walked past, um, these people and people gave him, a, I think, well-deserved. They gave him a, a bunch of flack for that. Um, but I haven't heard of what he's been doing since then. He, he has, he was a, a, he became a winemaker. He owned a vineyard of some kind in New Zealand. And, um, he spent like in between the time of losing his legs and then getting back into climbing, he, I think got into professional, uh, 
road biking or triathlons or something like that. I can't remember now, but yeah. So it was, I mean, it seemed like a very human story, you know, one that you were uh, attracted to. And I remember reading somewhere on a Reddit AMA that you'd done years ago, um, mm. someone had asked you the kinds of stories that you're attracted to. And you said, you gave an example of uh, Leo Holding story. I think mm. it was his attempt on the prophet and uh, Yuji mm. Hirayama. And both of them didn't accomplish their goals. And that's kind of mm. what made it at a level heroic for you. Uh, were you always attracted to this type of story? I mean, where I'm going with this is I just wanted to... uh understand in your mind what makes for a good climbing story for some people mm. it's just difficulty achievement that's it for others it is glam uh what attracted you what are the what were the types of uh, stories that you were drawn to um well you know i think that that I, those two stories are are sort of the 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 examples of the um the glorious failures, you know, or the, um, and that's, uh, an interesting, it's an interesting story as a, as a genre, because, um, it's, you know, we, we want people, I don't know. I think we're probably all drawn to, uh, people who dream big and, whether or not their dreams come true, the, the, it's the striving and aspirations to, um, try to achieve those dreams that is the most important thing. And it's where the most learning happens and the most change for the better happens. And that's sort of the, I mean, if that, that's the, the nature of all good stories is, is, um, conflict that is born of, someone trying to do something and learning on universal human lesson along the way. And the, whether the, whether the person gets the thing that they wanted um, or they don't, and they get something different that they didn't even realize they wanted. Those are the stories that are most interesting because that is the essential human struggle that we all are going through and um so i think that that's sort of a that's sort of just the a universal theme in all in all stories um in all movies as well it's the it's the character who has the most to learn and is faces the biggest challenges to uh to achieving that that life lesson that universal truth um and uh so i think that that's the that's how i think about stories and i think that's pretty it's, I'm, not, I'm not the first person to acknowledge that of course it's like a very standard standard thing but that's um i for me that's how i i think about uh i think that's a, a particularly crucial understanding or insight because that's it's so reflective of of what all climbing is and uh, that is a goal or it's a goal oriented sport. Um, but being able to draw out the, the lessons about what, what is actually important about climbing and, 
it's so often not the case that it's the it's the the piece of rock or the mountain that you climb or the the grade that you achieve it's the it's the value that you get in trying to achieve those things that is really where the story is um so yeah does that make sense no of course it does because yeah, yeah. uh i'm drawn to well if not the same themes but similar stories you know human growth essentially why i wanted to ask you that question was uh for two things like if i've i've read a lot of your older columns and then you know how your writing has changed a little bit over the years um the first thing is do you feel your own life i mean parenthood for example you have two daughters right now do you feel it's changed the types of themes that you respond to or uh, the types of stories that you look for in climbing or not does what change that my being a parent or uh, just being a parent for example life yeah. events your growth over the yeah. past 10 or 15 years yeah for sure i mean um i mean at the in some ways no and in some ways yes maybe you know obviously i a lot of what I find interesting is just a response to what's happening in the world, whether that's in the climbing world or in the world at large. Um, and, but there, you know, at the end of the day, it still comes down to, and, and this is really just, you know, a lot of the writing I do or some of the writing I do is not this like narrative journalistic writing. It's opinion pieces and that kind of thing as well. And so, but in terms of narrative storytelling, you know, those themes that we were just talking about, they don't really change. They just, the the specifics change, but the, the fundamental structure of like what makes that, that interesting, um, that story interesting is that doesn't change. Um, it's all about a human growth and um, wrestling with, age old questions about what makes us human and what makes us great and what makes us weak. And, um, and so that, that stuff doesn't change. It's just this, the specifics do. The second reason kind of why I wanted to ask you that was, you know, if I look back at some of the essays and the stories that were written in uh, the nineties, there was a nice essay from John uh, Krakow who it was called Empty Handed on the Devil's Thumb. I think it was from 91 or something. I've, I felt there was a point at which a lot of climbing writing was uh, going in the direction of literature. It had a lot of nuance. It had a lot of uh, human struggle and character growth and things like that. And maybe over the past five or six, maybe seven years, it's come down to a lot of abridged chunks that people mm. want to consume and you've worked long enough in this industry. So I wanted to understand if you feel uh, the nature of stories that people are interested in itself has changed. I mean, magazines, rock and Ice, or whoever, are they still interested in these big, long human pieces or what's going on there? Well, you know, I don't really know. Um, but I think that if I had to generalize, I think that there's just a, a degradation of, um, not only ability to write that kind of stuff, but also the, an ability just to read it. I think that people's attention spans have gotten really short. I think that we're used to flipping 
most of the reading that it seems that people do is flipping through captions on Instagram on, with their thumb, you know, and they're not really sitting down and absorbing um, writing the way that I think people used to to do. Obviously, that's not true universally, but I think that there is some of that. And you see that, you know, yeah, there's not a lot of uh, people doing what I would consider just like exceptional or interesting or new in-depth work because one, I, I mean, I'm not sure what the reasons are. It's really hard for one. And I don't know if there's even demand for that right now. It's not that it, seem, it doesn't seem like people even want to necessarily read that kind of thing. So that could be part of the explanation for it, but I don't know. What do you think? Do you, do you find do you, do you think that there's a, a degradation in attention span and uh, quality of writing and um, desire to read something immersive and, you know, 20,000 words long? Um, in short, yes. I mean, if I have to give a one word answer, but I think a lot of this obviously has to do with social media, right? Social media came and it didn't, it may not have intended to replace long form storytelling, but what it did was it just offered so much so quickly that people started preferring that and it became easier for them to consume social media in alignment with their lives as opposed to anticipate a story, go back home, make a cup of tea or coffee and then sit down and read it. Mm -hmm. And that was a thought that I had in my mind. I really wanted to understand how social media has changed storytelling. And it, there's obviously more cynical aspects of this, which I think we could talk about in, you know, the way climbers portray themselves, the, the image they put forward, um, this very caption, happy, nuance lacking, you know, the, the stories and the posts and things like that. But yeah, I think it has had a negative effect and even economically it's less viable i mean for me as a writer as a media person it's very hard to actually go out and get interest for a 5000 word piece i mean mm -hmm. print is suffering digital media is also a little bit shaky right now and companies would just rather prefer visual content over big yeah. stories. So you end up having to put in a lot more work as a writer and then you come out with a lot less money and you just come out with a lot less. And I think that's also demotivated people from getting into this space. And many young, intelligent, extremely interesting people have seen this and they would rather just go down the social media path because it's easier for their careers. And at some point they don't want to fight a battle that's that they can't control. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me too. Um, and it's too bad because, you know, one of the things I, I did like about writing about climbing, especially early on, was that these, it was a way to process just very intense experiences. You know, I, just being in New Zealand, I remember climbing this mountain and just really, it was like the first real, like, kind of mountaineering experience I'd had. And, there was this giant rock fall, like house sized rocks, like coming off the mountain. And, you know, I, <laughs> it's just like, so inexperienced and out of my element. And, 
and physically and mentally. And, and I just remember feeling like I needed to sit down and like write something about it just to understand what it was that I'd just gone through. And, um, you know, one of the, when I started writing, there was this, there was a belief at this time that sport climbing and bouldering, which, you know, ultimately came to be my preferred and interests in the sport. Um, there was a sense that these, I, that sport climbing and bouldering didn't, didn't, uh, couldn't produce quality writing, um, because, uh, there is this, you know, there is a liter, a literary history in mountaineering that went back, you know, decades and sport climbing and bouldering didn't really have that, uh, canon of work. And so the, um, people not only they thought that it, that you literally couldn't write something meaningful and interesting and deep and rich about these pursuits because they were so, you know, they didn't, well, they were just short and temp, you know, the, the, the mountaineering is interesting because it's like a very obvious beginning, middle and end, you know, you like start at the bottom of the mountain, you get to the top and then you have to come down. And there's, um, you know, that's the, a classic story structure right there that's handed to you in the, like in the chronological description of what you're actually doing. And the fact that it takes, you know, days is adds to that, um, you know, a sport climb or a boulder problem lasts seconds or minutes. And, and so how do you write about those things in a way that, um, that makes them interesting and can add to that, that literary tradition of climbing writing. And so that was something that was an early goal of mine was to try to change that perspective. And uh, I, I started dabbling with that on my website when I started the day I sent series. Um, and that was really born of this idea that you should, um, that you can write about, you know, an, a, a, a moment that you send something meaningful in a way that, has some of those literary elements to them. And I, I'm, that's a long uh, way of getting back to the point that, that we were talking about, which is, I think it's a sad thing if people don't take the time to sit down at their computer and write something about a meaningful moment in their sport climbing or bouldering careers. If they're just, if, if all they're doing is putting together an Instagram caption I don't know if they're really wrestling with the big questions or giving themselves a chance to find something, um, you know, deeper and more meaningful about what they they've done. And I think that's a shame because that's part of the, it's, it's not just enough to just climb the thing that you want to climb. Like you should, you should really like reflect on what that means and, and the, the journey that you went through and what you learned about yourself and uh, about life and the people that you were with. Um, and I think that that's really evoked through, uh, through the process of, of trying to write something good um, and long and interesting. And um, I don't know if you can, 
necessarily really do that if it's if you're just you know doing an Instagram caption for yourself. I had this uh, thought going through my mind. I was recently I interviewed uh, Conrad Anker for the show, and then as part of it, I was watching as part of my research, I was watching his film Meru. Have you seen it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember sitting down with this exact same thought that you know bouldering needs more of these uh, these deeper full spectrum human stories mm-hmm. and yes it's it's just easy to do it with alpinism because you know as you said it's like in the format is prepared for you it's also very aligned with uh basic human logic and senses bottom to top in the middle i mean there are all these antagonizing elements the weather and I mean, I mean, the struggle gets harder as you go towards the top. It's unpredictable. You never know if it's over till it's over. And then there's the triumph. And yeah, there's a cinematic familiarity to it, if you will. And even a literary familiarity to it. But with bouldering, it's, I think it faces the challenge of time. It's, you know, you have a, you spend 58 seconds or 57 seconds on the hardest problem of your life. How do you then take that reduced chunk of time? and expand it into Mm -hmm. the type of uh, canvas that alpinism can play on. I think Mm -hmm. that's the challenge. And I definitely think it needs a lot of uh, digging deep. And it's not that the stories aren't there. It's just that if you look to maybe write about that experience in the exact same way as a mountain conquest is written, then you're obviously going to be facing challenges, but there's so much that you can dig into, you know, because mm-hmm. when you almost fall off at the end of your project, and this has happened to me, I mean, 13 moves, all the hard moves done. And then I just blew it once uh, right at the end. That moment alone for me can fill a page. It can fill a page and a half because I was so upset. I was so angry. I threw my shoes I mean, I was alone with my wife and my, uh, at then four year old son. And he actually went looking for my shoe and he came back and he gave it to me and I had to drink water. And he was, he was telling me, no, you climbed really well. And he was in his, in his way, which was extremely sincere. And there was so much of self doubt. There was so much of, uh, anxiety, send anxiety. There was so much going on emotionally, but it was this condensed chunk of time. Yeah. And I think that's the trick, sort of taking that five minute rest period and trying to draw it out into a story, which I agree with you. You know, when there's a, there's an environment where all of that can simply be replaced by a picture with a cool Mm -hmm. caption and, you know, just something saying, Oh, almost blew it, but sent it next go. Boom. Emoji, emoji. it's yeah. I mean, it's a short circuit, right? You've almost blown the chance for that story to exist. Right. And this is where I think of the nature of content. Again, that's become a sudden word with a type of connotation today that whether it's with pro athletes or otherwise brands and entities can start expecting from people in climbing, you know, they need to expect storytelling, Mm-hmm. and not just clicks. And I know clicks and engagements make financial sense. So all of my 
spouting all these uh, deep ideals that it doesn't mean anything if it doesn't translate to money. But yeah, once they start expecting that, I think we could see some form of a return or some form of an interest in understanding mm-hmm. it. Because instead of learning how to set up camera angles better or learning how to basically have three different tripods with three different angles set up and edit the video, you would also take the time to read and then learn how to write your story. Hmm. That's a, well, that's my view on it. Yeah. Well, it's a, I mean, just it's, it's overwhelming to do all of that. (laughs) 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 It is. Um, God, speaking of overwhelming, I'm just going to get to a, question and you can choose to answer this or not do you feel like do you feel like it's hard for you to write like yourself these days because you have a type of sarcasm and you have a type of uh, salt in your writing that I genuinely feel is good natured but it can pass over the heads of people and then you know it, the outrage the eruption how healthy is this for journalism and do you does it make your work as a writer harder dealing with Um, the activists? Yeah, it does. Obviously I've been, um, you know, I've been slapped around by the climbing community a bunch in recent years. And that's changed the nature of the, the size and the, the anger of the mob is changed from being able to, from people who you just get angry emails to now it's like, there's like this weaponization of people on only on social media where they have this sort of outsized voice and power and can decide that what you've written is out of bounds for them. Um, so, you know, you only have to go through a few experiences like that to realize that to start questioning whether it's worth, you know, sharing an opinion at all. And, uh, you know, more and more, the answer for me is like, no, it's not worth it. So, um, I am definitely aware of that and, uh, definitely influenced by it. And yeah, it sucks. I mean, I, you can't help but write as yourself, you know, I'm not going to change who I am and, uh, or I'm not going to present something that feels false. Um, obviously I'll change as a person, but, um, I'm not going to change, present a, I can't write as, as if I'm someone else. And so I can only be myself and, um, you know, whether, whether that means, you know, I don't know. I just kind of lost the thought there, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's in general, it's a tough, tough time to, to, uh, to be able to share opinions that go against um, what's considered, you know, the, the, the proper inbound, you know, safe thing to say, um, because the the um, the potential for uh, for recourse is so great. I've I've seen this play out live on social media and actually a bunch of us here, a couple, a friend of mine um, and myself and yeah, people around. I saw that in the reactions to, you know, the article you wrote about renaming uh, Roots for Rockinized. And I'd like to put my opinion out there about it because 
you wrote about being considerate towards children when you're renaming and obviously a lot of the focus came to what you who should have written this piece and you know what you didn't write about and softball and all of that and sitting here in india but obviously looking at all this it's it's amazing how different value systems are and how different trigger points are because i feel it's a very valid thing you said to be considerate about children and you took that route pump full of semen right i mean if you name roots in that manner this juvenile shock jockey expletive ridden 1997 howard sternish style if you name roots like that over here in india border problems whatever it would just be awkward uncomfortable and you know it wouldn't be a nice experience for anyone and i use a lot of expletives in my language every day but i didn't see anything wrong in making that claim mm-hmm. and i want to tell you this as a media person as a brown person or well here i'm an indian but i would be classified as brown elsewhere um and for anyone listening i think it's important for this opinion to be heard as well it's one thing to it's something to think about if someone says i like blue it's or if they say they like something and it doesn't mean they're saying they don't like something else or you know they have malicious intent towards it and i know what i'm saying right now could if anyone choose uh be twisted and turned into insensitivity which it isn't but i'm just reflecting over here on yeah values and how they change and one one thing that did strike me was the number of people who were just okay like actually very approving and very okay of children being exposed to this stuff mm. and they were like oh yeah forget the children you know they they're cool they're going to learn these words anyways at some at some point in time and what's the big deal this is what we really need to take care of and i well, you know what we're i think what what's missing the the real context is that america's in a very heated situation right now and there's a lot of dry kindling and it doesn't take much to start a huge brush fire mm. um and so every people are pissed off right now and there's this pandemic people are anxious they're out of work they're protesting in the street they're seeing a increasingly fascist behavior from our our leaders and and um our inept uh president and um we it doesn't take much for, for to set people off and so you know the the arguments against my story i felt were very low quality arguments and you know i don't i don't think that what i wrote was a very good article but it wasn't there's nothing in it that's bad either and as you mentioned a lot of the arguments were what either wasn't said or the fact that who i was should somehow um uh, make um a difference in terms of um what what could be said and also just that there is this idea that because i had written this like no one else could have another word in in the infinite in the finite pixelation of rockenice's website you know they don't have room for 
any other words but mine on this subject, which is, of course, a, a silly argument. Um, so I, I wasn't really, that whole experience for me wasn't that, I kind of laughed it off in a lot of ways, um, unlike other cancellations I've gone through, which did affect me psychologically and in a different level. Um, but this one, I, I, I just stopped going on Instagram and I didn't see any of it. So all of the people who were criticizing me sort of ceased to exist from reality, um, which is kind of one of the, one of the benefits of, um, having it so concentrated on a single app is if you just don't go on the app, then you don't see it. So, <laughs> which I think is a psychologically healthy, healthy way to go in moments like this. Well, it's also a powerful skill, man, to just deep luck. And I, it's not really that much, but it's so in your face all the time that, uh, you know, even for me, it's like a vortex of bad thinking. I get into, I used to be big on comment wars and be very active, but then, um, and this was in the days of Facebook when people actually used to argue on Facebook and it reached a point where I realized I was just angry the entire day and only following through on the comments the entire day. And it just ate into so much of my productivity and so much of my calm that Mm -hmm. I realized, God, this just isn't, no, it's not worth it. I'm a passive observer now, but also given that what's going on in America, clearly it is a civil rights movement within America, but the entire world is consuming the media and the conversation that's happening over there. Mm And it's almost inevitable to try and see what's going on. I've been reading Rock and Nice for a long time. So when I saw the backlash over here, I was, well, outraged, yes, but I was surprised about the level to which it went, mm-hmm. you know, a thousand something comments and a lot of uh, personal attacks and so on. Mm-hmm. One of the main things was that there aren't any diverse voices writing. It's usually an individual of a certain profile, white and male. What is your take on that? Do you think publications have defaulted or, you know, they can do better? What are some steps going forward? Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I have no, I don't really know what the answer to that is. I mean, people, have to, you know, I, I, I think that the, the, the more perspectives that you, um, that you are open to the better, you know, so that's a, an objectively good thing that we should all be trying to read things that we disagree with from, or that we agree with from different perspectives, uh, around the world. And so I don't, I feel like that's always been, um, a goal and, uh, and it's a, it's just an objectively good thing. Now, I don't know, um, if the argument is, are there enough, um, is there enough diversity in whatever genre it is that you want to, uh, to focus on? I don't know what the correct answer is. Like, what, what does that mean? Like, how do you measure that? And, Um, so I don't know. I mean, more, more diversity is better, more perspectives, more ideas from different people. All that's better. Um, is there, you know, 
the idea that someone is taking someone's space away from them by writing from their own perspective. I don't agree with that, that idea. Um, there's no shortage of opportunities to share your, your perspective. I mean, you don't need to be published in a magazine to have your story read by hundreds of thousands of people. Now you can put it on medium and share your story. Um, you can have, you, you, we have this thing called the internet, which is things can go viral. You can build a career for yourself without the traditional channels. And so um, the, there's no shortage of opportunity that's open, I think, to everyone in terms of being able to share writing or ideas or videos or stories. And uh, so, and I, and we've seen that. I mean, the fact that we're talking right now is, is um, proof that, that this, there's, there is this chance to connect with people around the world and share ideas and have conversations. It's interesting you said that because we're also at a very uh, tricky point in the evolution of media, right? At one point, traditional media houses and publications basically held a lot of publishing power. And, you know, once you were on their channels, I mean, you were clearly that much, your voice was that much louder. But I think it's also an interesting time for traditional media in that it doesn't hold that much more of a reach over individualized channels. So I think, mm -hmm. yeah, there's no fixed answer. It's just a question of how this is going to go. I mean, sitting in India, sometimes I've, I'll be honest with you. I've thought, Hey, it would be nice to write for Rocknice. It would be nice to put an Indian perspective out there because I've consumed so much of this and I've read people saying that, okay, climbing is white and privileged and male. And yet here, if you look at the people who are involved in climbing and in the most intricate way, it's the exact opposite narrative from people who don't have to worry about money and can only bother about their projects and go climbing. Most of the people who are involved in it very seriously are really from the lower socioeconomic classes. They don't have a very high level of education. They don't have that choice to unplug from a dirtbag lifestyle and then kind of just go into a corporate job. And yet, they kind of thrown themselves all in. It's yeah, it's shooting blind almost. And it's mm -hmm. a very different dynamic to what is, cons you know, uh, yeah, the custodianship of climbing in America, or at least the way that it's being expressed. So it would be interesting for the big uh, publications and so on to just show an interest in hearing these things. I mean, that's, yeah, that's just my view on it. But the fact that we're well, talking says a lot. I think that the one thing that people don't understand is that magazines need writers. They need content. They can't find enough writers and they can't create enough content. They're desperate for anyone to do consistent quality work for them. And that's the hard part. It's the consistent and quality part that, that doesn't um, always manifest. And, um, but the idea that, there's somehow magazines are this somehow um, elite institutions where it's just who, you know, and, you know, these connections that you make to get published um, is just, it's a false idea because I mean, I've lived that experience of being an editor 
and being desperate to find people who can do quality work. And, uh, and so there's no shortage of opportunities for people who can do good quality, interesting work and, um, and do that consistently. Um, so, but I think that what the, the more important thing right now is to realize that you don't need to go that route to create a voice and opportunities for yourself because the internet has completely changed the game and anybody who writes interesting things can build a huge audience and build a career for themselves and support themselves through, through that, through, through non-traditional channels. Um, and so it's a really, it's a, it's a great time for opportunity for, uh, a certain democracy of perspectives and voices. And, um, I think that we should be celebrating that because that's, I mean, that's an objectively good thing that's happened. Yeah, for sure. If this was 2001, 99, I wouldn't have been able to have this conversation with you or, mm-hmm. well, I'd have to be in a big FM station and then, you know, just <laughs> establishing contact <laughs> would have been hard. So, well, uh, Jesus, so much to pick into, but I think this is about as much time as we have for this conversation. So, yeah. And now I wish I'd kind of asked you for a bigger slot, but maybe one in the future though. Yeah, we um, can do this again. Yeah, we should. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, it yeah. was, lo- it was lovely chatting and yeah, it was a lovely exchanging viewpoints and hearing about your journey. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening to mine. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you should write some stuff for evening sounds. I should. I will. I have so many ideas. I will. <laughs> For sure. Okay. I would love to. And, uh, yeah, great work on the consistency since we spoke about that, of running <laughs> that it's been running for ages and it's, uh, yeah, it's like one of the constants in the climbing world right now. It's great. You Thanks, should Dylan. take care, man. See you. Very nice to talk to you. Bye. You do. Bye-bye.